My name is Malu Sindlovu and I'll be chairing this session. Welcome to this uh, Retirement Matters session uh, titled In-Fund Living Annuities, Issues to Consider When Retirement Funds Implement In-Fund Annuity Strategies and the Experience and Learnings to Date. That's the abbreviated title. <laughs> Hopefully you are in the right venue. If you are looking for a different session, please uh, take the time now to leave but you are welcome to stay. The session today uh, will be presented by uh, David Gluckman and uh, Danny Van Zyl. Um, can I encourage you to please tweet and participate on social media? The hashtag is hashtag ESSA2018, and please tag the Actuarial Society's account, at ActuarialSA. Um, David is an executive committee with um, is an executive committee member with Sandam Employee Benefits. He is a fellow of the Actuarial Society of South Africa, and he is a member of the Actuarial Society's Retirement Matters Committee, the Surplus and Social Security Committee, as well as the ASISA Retirement Fund Disclosure Committee. Danny is um, also works at Sandam in the employee benefits space. He is a member of the Institutional Investment Committee as well as the expert panel on the benchmark survey. He's also a fellow of the Actuarial Society and a CFP professional. So without further ado, please welcome David. Thank you. Okay, Th thank you Melusi and good morning everybody. Um, the genesis of uh, this uh, presentation, actually I, I can date that, was on the afternoon of the 5th of April this year, when I was under no idea I'd be presenting to the Actuarial Society this year, but an email arrived in my inbox saying the call for papers and presentations closes tomorrow. And they gave a list of possible subjects, one of them was in-fund living annuities, and I thought, well, uh, I got collared into doing a presentation to the South African uh, Independent Financial Advisors Association last year on the matter, so surely it won't be too difficult to update the presentation, and yeah, we are today, but it actually has been a lot of work uh, over the subsequent six months, and I hope the presentation will be of, of, of value. That, that's the aim. So to set the scene, I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the last, talk and action, in fact, over the last uh, 10 years on the retirement fund reform issues, but I would say it's concentrated more on the contributory phase. If I were to make a prediction, I will say that over the next five years, the, the, the focus is going to change to the uh, deaccumulation phase, because obviously there's no point having a great retirement benefit at retirement age and then uh, spending it poorly thereafter. And we can see that summarized in these national uh, Treasury concerns where they talk about the contributory phase and then essentially, I mean, we can debate if they're right or not, not right, but essentially the, the view that there are two worlds and then members are simply, or retirees are left, left to the retail market and now they want to get trustees or funds involved to actually try and get a better deal for, for the retirees ultimately. And, I mean, obviously we all know it's now gone forward and we've got the default regulations uh, pretty much close to uh, implementation in, in maybe a little bit over 100 days. And, I mean, there we get um, 
quote from leading industry experts on, on the new market saying there are many trustees seriously considering, considering in-fund options. And we'll get these sub-headlines, which I'll just chuck in there, because just to show that this is relevant, this is the Business Times uh, less than two weeks ago. So the debate certainly is uh, hotting up. And one reason why I do think it's important is, uh, I mean, given in this slide, so this is our Sunland benchmark research, and we surveyed over 500 members of retirement funds across the country in 2015. And we asked them the question, if your employer basically offered a good pension from your fund, would you take that? And with a 47.7% take-up, that actually means potentially this is a significant issue for the, for the annuities market. Uh, I must say, you always have to wonder about these surveys, do the members understand what they were being asked, etc. But nonetheless, I think there is something in there. Turning to the industry statistics, I mean, over the last uh, 15 years or so, I mean, we see this huge move towards uh, living annuities, which is maybe part of the reason we wanted to talk to that today. And if we summarize uh, another way of looking at these statistics, we can see at the top the, the new business statistics for 2015. These are all annuities or retail annuities sold, sold in South Africa. And maybe the interesting numbers, looking at numbers, living annuities outnumbering, let's say, conventional guaranteed life annuities, whatever you want to call them. I think we're using the term life annuities on a four to one basis, but in assets by 10 to one. Maybe it's worthwhile just to contrast with some of the figures we're going to show later for infant living annuities, that the average is about a million rands uh, per new policy written. And in fact, that's pretty much also the case if you look at the whole book, 400, over 400 billion in living annuities, about a million rand average according to the assisted statistics. So of course, you use averages with caution. Um, so uh, the the aim of our research is really just to inform form the debates. I mean, the bottom line is you can like them or don't like them, but living annuities are the de facto pension of choice of South Africans. So that surely is an important thing. The default regulation specifically mentioned both in-fund and out-of-fund living annuities, and that really was the aim of our research. We said, let's try contrast those two types of living annuities. Um, we're not going to focus on other aspects like comparing life annuities to living annuities or, or talking about you know, how you transition a living annuity to a guaranteed annuity over, over time, but we will touch on those briefly. But, but the main point is to talk about infant living annuities. So this, I think, is an interesting slide. And in fact, when I did my presentation last year, I only had four points of the differences between um, in-fund living annuities and out-of-fund living annuities, but we have extended it to 10 this year because as Danny and I have done the research, every now and again we come across a little subtle thing and we say, oh, that's another difference that we didn't think, think of. So let me try to run through them quite quickly. Um, okay, the first one, obviously, I won't go into great detail. Uh, the ones governed by the Pension Fund Act or subject to the Pension Act, the other one subject to the Long-Term Insurance Act. The one is governed by a board of trustees, the other one essentially the contract is an individual insurance contract. Then we've got the differences in death benefits, uh, nominated beneficiaries versus uh, the 37C of the Pension Fund Act. Differences as far as regulation 28 is concerned uh, as far as investments and for out of fund annuities I, I added the word yet because Regulation 28 certainly does not currently apply to out-of-fund living annuities, but it does apply if any of those are going to be used as part of a trustee-endorsed strategy from March next year. 
And then the ones I didn't think about last year, but now kind of add them in to the pot. Uh, regulation 39, the default regulation, specifically for in-fund, the trustees have an obligation to monitor sustainability. And while that is not explicit uh, in the case of out-of-fund living annuities when used as part of the Regulation 39 annuity, I would argue you kind of have to do it anyway because there is a requirement in Regulation 39 to review the strategy on an annual basis. And how can one review properly if you don't look at the experience of your retirees? Um, the issue of transferability, another difference. Um, Here's another one. I mean, out of fund, it's an insurance contract, so almost all the insurers are members of ACESA. ACESA standards apply. They do not, ACESA standards do not apply to funds. So while it might be good practice, in the absence of legislation, um, there's a difference in cost, cost disclosure standards. There's even differences in who can advise on these products. Certainly out of fund living issues would fall into the retail pension benefits category. It's debatable for in-fund living annuities. The safest, if you were to ask me, is to be registered both for, or licensed both for uh, uh, retail pension benefits and pension benefits. But there can be a debate about that one. And here's one I really like, because I hate bureaucracy and paperwork. So I can tell you a big advantage of in-fund living annuities is the money's already in the fund. You don't have to go through all the, the, the FICA burden, uh, et cetera. And then there's differences of protection from creditors. So I must say, I think there are quite a few subtle differences. Some are significant, some are not so significant, but I'm not sure everyone advising on these things you know, thinks about, about all those differences. So that's my introductory summary. I'm now going to hand over to Dani to take through some of the analysis that we did. Thank you, David. Hello, everyone. So we did two sets of research. Firstly, we mined our own data. We're a big administrator. We have a number of funds that have in-fund living annuities, and that helps us getting nice quantitative data. You know, we know how much it costs to, you know, for the funds to have it because we're charging that fee. On the other hand, we did a survey as well, an online survey. A lot of these the online survey were external funds, and there we can ask more qualitative data, sort of what have you learned and what have you seen. And part of the reason is to obviously see what we can learn from these funds. Some of them have been running in-fund living annuities since the late 90s, so they have a bit of experience. But also, it seems that some consultants have some pretty preconceived ideas about infant living annuities. Um, when we started talking about this, I engaged with a group of consultants, and they had this idea that it is more likely to have people with small pots of money have going for infant living annuity, and therefore their drawdowns might be quite high. Now, when I mentioned that to David, he was quite you know, surprised by that kind of thing. So we thought, well, let's go and test our own data and see whether that is actually relevant. Now, I must just emphasize that in all cases, we don't have hundreds of funds running in-fund living annuities. So the sample size is quite small, but these are your larger type funds and they've been running for a while, so we do think the results are quite credible. So you can see the small number of pensioners, but it's been increasing about 25% per annum, which is a big increase, but from a small base. And then the other thing that um, David highlighted, the CISA figure shows an average fund value of around a million. Our data shows about three times that, so about members within three million rand on, on, on nearly, or nearly three million rand on average. So yes, CISA data will have guys who have multiple product living annuities, a small part of their total savings, but it does show that perhaps the, the conceived conceive notion that only guys with the small pots will go here and the guys with the big pots will go outside is perhaps not quite valid. The one thing I also want to emphasize is all the funds we found have more than a billion in assets under management. So you don't find smaller funds actually offering infant living annuities, and we will touch on that a bit later. 
Then if you just look against uh, our data versus the CISA data, the average fund pension, once again, is not a lot small, it's not smaller than the CISA data, it's actually larger. And even our drawdown rates, weighted or unweighted, does seem a bit better in the CISA figures. Now, those are average figures. What we ideally would like to do is just look at the drawdown per age band. Unfortunately, our CISA doesn't give an average drawdown per age band. They give an asset value per drawdown band per age band. So what I did is, uh, sort of worked out the weighted average. So that grayish bar you see there, this CISA average per age band will be somewhere in that gray bar. I didn't use this average figure. And then we took our average, that's a red dot. And as you can see, per age band, it's either below the CISA average or it's at the bottom end of the CISA range. So once again, the notion that perhaps guys will have small pots and have high drawdown rates doesn't seem to be borne out in practice. Then also, the other thing that we, that we realized as we started engaging with consultants is there is a preconceived idea that there will be a certain saving when you go in fund living annuity, and most consultants have this idea that it will be a 1% saving. Now, I'm always wondering where people get these sort of um, figures from. Firstly, is 1% saving you know, really relevant? Well, if you start with a 5 million and you draw like a 5% drawdown, you're getting about a, just over 20,000 rand per month, you know, pension, a 1% of your five, uh, 5 million, you can save about 4,000 extra a month. So it is material, but is this really realistic? Can you expect a 1% saving? So we dug a little further on our data. So we have our own Sunom data to in front of annuities, and then two major list providers out there. And we first looked at administration fees, so yes, obviously the infant living annuity is a bit more, uh, cheaper than administration fee, and mostly because it piggybacks on the bulk or the economies of scale from the active members in the fund. Would a fund, if it was only infant living annuities, be able to pay such a low admin fee? Probably not. But it's, you know, they're piggybacking on that. And I'm just contrasting that to the treasury paper from 2012. Then we look at advice. Um, only for those members who do pay advice, it's slightly cheaper. But overall, if you add administration advice together, you do get a 50-bit um, saving. So if you want to get to the mythical 1% saving, you actually need to have a saving on the investment side as well. Now, this is very difficult to actually compare because different funds have different investment choices, they have different uh, fee arrangements, and the same with list providers. But our feeling is if you're a large fund, you can negotiate lower fees and you may well access um, these portfolios and get a 50 bip saving. It is unlikely that a smaller fund, though, will actually access that 50 bip saving. And therefore, a smaller fund is more, less likely to get to this 1% saving compared to uh, the outer fund living annuities. Now, the one thing, you know, we pick it, the in-fund living annuities do pick it back on you know, the active members, but also there's a difference in servicing model. And as Darby mentioned uh, um, a while back, the big problem is you cannot deliver a retail service and then ask institutional or a wholesale price. And I think that's something that a lot of these funds are still grappling with you know, going forward. And yes, you know, the slide is still uh, accurate until the end of the month. Okay, so then we turn to the retirement survey. So we, we had an online survey. We approached different funds who have been running in-fund living annuities. I said the majority of them are not administered by Sundam. And we had 45 questions only. And once again, we had 15 funds responding, about 22 respondents. So sometimes we had more than one respondent per fund. But it was interesting sometimes we did the consultant's view and, for instance, the principal officer's view. And as I said, it's a small pool, but once again, these are your larger guys who haven't been running it for a while. And just to show that, we actually, when we analyzed the data, showed there was like two waves of funds. Those who have had infant living annuities for 
many, many years. In fact, some of them since the late 90s. Then for a few years, nobody introduced in front of Inutis. And then since 2015, there's another way to actually introduce in front of Inutis. Once again, numbers are quite small, but also growing quite fast on an annual basis. And I'm trying to move my slides forward. There you go. Oops, sorry. So we didn't ask them, these people, so we gave a list of possible responses and asked them, when you introduce your infant living annuity, what were the main reasons? And then we sort of just looked at those with more than five responses. Now, it's interesting, you can group a lot of them together. The first two, which are the highest number of selections, are about costs. It's your admin costs, it's an investment cost. So clearly, the whole reason why people think of infant living annuities is about cost. The second two you can also group together, and that's about the cost and quality of you know, retail financial advice. It's clearly, some trustees have concerns about these. And then the last one is you know, continuing with your pre-retirement investment or seamless transfer, so sort of ease of just continuing with what you have been doing. So it's very clear there's like the three main aims coming through. And we ask, well, why do you think members are choosing this? Once again, pre-determined, you know, we had a list of options. Cost savings are the number one choice as, as well. So to a large extent, this is driven by cost. Now, what we also found out is a lot of trustees didn't really appreciate all the additional governance they need to do when they actually introduce the infant living annuity. And especially there are risks that members face when they're in the decumulation phase that's different from when they're in the accumulation phase. And some of those are investments and drawdown rates. So we asked actually trustees, do you review investment options from these infant living annuities and the drawdown rates? And the you know, results are pretty similar for both. But as soon as you start digging a bit deeper once again, and say, would trustees actually intervene if, for instance, there's suboptimal investment choices or whether they have unsustainably high drawdown rates, you see a bit of a difference emerging. Trustees are far more comfortable to intervene when drawdown rates are high than when investment options are unsustainable. And we actually also have you intervened in the past? And you can see, once again, funds have, trustees have intervened where people have very high drawdown rates, but only one of the respondents actually said, yes, we have intervened where the investment option was um, different. So once again, trustees perhaps feel less able or less comfortable intervening about investment choices, but are quite comfortable telling a member, no, you can't withdraw 17.5%. A lot of funds also have a cap imposed on their drawdown rates. Either it's a flat cap or it's an age-related cap up to below the maximum of 17.5%. But the other, nearly half said, no, it's fine. You can go and draw as much as you want to, which is quite interesting. We also ask our funds, do you prefer that the fixed drawdown be reviewed you know, at a fixed, sorry, a fixed date, when you can review the drawdown rates. And this sort of harks back to the DB days, where trustees would have one date in the year where they communicate to all the pensioners. Um, trustees find it a lot more easier than trying to communicate to members you know, throughout the years. So everyone has to review the drawdown rate once a year. It's far easier for, for trustees. And then we looked at investment portfolios. Now, a number of funds actually have a large number of investment portfolios. Now, remember, Rick 39 says, you know, if you're a default investment strategy, you need a maximum of four investment choices. Now, a large number of funds actually just said, if a member post-retirement, you can access all the investment options that members had available pre-retirement. So, you know, there's a range of options, and you just go ahead and you can pick from that. And then four of them have more than 10 choices. Now, Half of the funds actually have a default investment choice, and where there's a default, a split half-half between a moderate balance fund and a smooth bonus type portfolio. And then we said, would you mind, do you have a, prefer that Regulation 28 does not apply to your um, infant living annuitants? 
And actually, the most of the respondents said no, they're actually quite happy for Regulation 28 to apply. I think it also just makes it easier if Regulation 28 applies to the guys pre-retirement, you use the same portfolios after retirement, and they prefer using the same portfolios. So a couple of things we picked up on is the risk specific to um, infant living annuitants is obviously your sequence of return or your path dependency risk. If you have a big market crash just after retirement, your chances of having a successful retirement is quite low. Um, I had experience of this a few years ago. I was on the radio, and the next day, a woman from the Free State tracked me down. And he has been retired for four years, and he's half the retirement capital. You know, what now? And unfortunately, there is no good news you can tell a member in that sort of a situation. The other big concern we have is members who are recklessly conservative. We do see a lot of members with a large cash allocation. And if you're going to live for 20, 30 years, you want CPI-related increase every year, that's just way too conservative. Now, what we do to just show trustees and um, the impact of sequence return risk, and this should be intuitive for actuaries, but if you have an X amount, you know, and you have a sequence of returns, the top one there where you start with high returns, end of low returns, and you just take the sequence and turn it around, you have a negative returns early on and high returns later, and you don't put money in or out, it doesn't really matter what the sequence is, you end up in the same place, because you, you know, multiply one plus you know, I the whole time. As soon as you see Haitian, where, for instance, you have a new attempt, who's withdrawing 6% per annum from his portfolio and increasing that every year with inflation, it makes a massive difference whether you have the high returns up front or the, the negative returns up front. And you quite likely run out of money. So you, essentially what I tell members is you know, you're standing in, in a hole and while you know, in the hole you, start, you continue digging it deeper because you're withdrawing income and you're selling cheap units. Now there are various ways to try and address sequence risk. And what was interesting is we're seeing more and more funds actually paying attention to this and thinking about how they can tweak the, um, the strategy going forward. And so this is an example we've used in a couple of presentations. There are other uh, methods of addressing it as well. But let's say you have a conservative portfolio. So think of a low equity balance fund. So that's the yellow line. You have aggressive equity portfolio, the green line. And then you have something in the middle. You put a quarter of your money, so five times your annual drawdown, if your drawdown is 5%, into a conservative or a protection portfolio, let's say a smooth bonus portfolio in this case, and the other three quarters you put in an aggressive portfolio. Now, first I'm going to focus on, you have 50,000 rand, and we want to keep the incomes level in real terms. So as long as the lines is level, your income increases with inflation, but unfortunately, at some point of time, you're going to hit the 17.5% cap and your income is sort of going down, which is obviously not a good thing. So, First, going to focus on a negative return environment. So, on our modeling, our fifth percentile for results. As expected, you know, your aggressive portfolio underperforms in a low return environment because it is very aggressively invested. So, your income goes down quicker. The more conservative portfolio does a little bit better in a, so it's a negative environment. So, that's your line. So, it does fairly um, a little bit better. But it's interesting, even though your middle portfolio, which has a combination of smooth bonus and aggressive, and you actually draw all your income from the smooth bonus portfolio, it, even though you have sort of a three-quarter allocation to aggressive portfolio, your end result is far more closer to the conservative portfolio than the aggressive one. So you have sort of protection built in. Now you might ask, you now what happens in a median return environment? And I'll just show this once again. In a median return environment, obviously your conservative portfolio will lag, but once again, your aggressive portfolio and the combination of the different two portfolios are doing better. So even though you have a quarter of your money in a smooth bonus type portfolio. So what we're seeing is funds are more thinking about using, combining different kinds of portfolios in a solution. But I do realize there is not one single portfolio that can address both sequence of return risk and investing to, um, conservatively. And to a certain extent, this is like taking your life stage solution 
and just running it through retirement into retirement and investing people differently depending on how long they have been retired. And so we are expecting to see a lot more innovation in this regard going forward. Then we ask um, funds also, do you facilitate life annuity or guaranteed annuity um, quotations? A lot of them do, mostly at retirement, but we're also seeing a lot more funds being interested in allowing people to phase into a guaranteed annuity at later stages, age 70, 75, and so. And I know there's some presentations on this later in the conference. The one thing we like emphasizing to proceed, which I don't think is intuitively obvious, is with the flexibility of annuitizing later, there is a potential cost. Um, we all, it makes intuitive sense to say, yes, I still want to invest my money when I'm 65 or 70, but how many of us actually want to still be doing this when you're 85? You, know, you might not have the cognitive ability to do that. So it makes sense to say, I'll be in a living annuity for five, 10 years, and then move into guaranteed annuity. But just look at the following example. Let's say a gentleman who's 65, he's single, he comes to Sunlam with a, a million, one million rand, and says, please give me a guaranteed annuity escalating at 5% per annum. I asked our annuity team, and they said, fine, they'll give him an annuity of just under 100,000 rand per annum. So every year, his income will increase to 5%, so after five years, he'll get 121,000 per annum. Now, let's assume the same member decided, hang on, I'm not taking a living annuity, or sorry, a guaranteed annuity, I'm investing in a living annuity, but I'm going to withdraw the same income as I would have received in a guaranteed annuity. So you can start with the same nearly 100,000 rand, increase it every um, year 5%. And then after five years, he decided, now hang on, I actually now, at this point in time, want to go and buy the guaranteed annuity that was quoted earlier. Now, the interesting thing is, if you buy an annuity later, uh, you're now a select life. You know, when you've retired, there was a lot of people retiring with you who were in poor health. Most of them have passed away. Your likelihood of actually now making it to 80 is actually a bit higher. So, you know, relatively, you're paying a little bit more to actually buy the annuity at a later stage. So we would um, ask him about just over a million rand to get his now 121,000 per annum. And yes, this is a simplified example. I have the same yield curve. I assume the mortality rate doesn't change anything like that. And then the question is, what return does a member need in his living annuity for that period of time to break even, to be in the same position irrespective of whether he had the guaranteed annuity or living annuity? And the results are actually quite interesting. We showed that you need to earn about 14% per annum in nominal terms for five years to just break even. Now, I hope like many of like me, many of you will find that's quite a high percentage. After 15 years, you actually need 16% per annum to break even. Now, yes, flexibility sounds great. Often flexibility do come at a cost, and I don't think it, people really understand the impact, or trustees even understand the impact of that. And that's something we think that needs to be highlighted. Now, it has been pointed out to me that this is a very simplified example, you know. Um, Interest rates can go up, interest can go down, you know, the insurance company can change the pricing basis. And, you know, actuaries would have said, you know, we can time when we buy a guaranteed annuity when the interest rates spike. Well, the average fund member is not an actuary. He can't really decide on that. So, yes, it is nice to have flexibility. Just remember, on average, you are likely to pay a little bit more for having that flexibility. Then just turning to the default regulations. So a lot of these funds had these infant living annuities already before the default regs came out. We asked how many are going to use your current infant living annuity as your default annuity, and the majority said yes. What I found interesting is we did this survey in September. There's still four funds out of there that haven't, are unsure, and you have to have this ready by March next year, which is a bit of a concern. We also asked, would it be preferred annuity for the qualifying retirees, so you can have different default you know, annuity strategies for different groups of members? Once again, the majority said yes, but once again, 6% of them say, well, they're not quite sure yet. 
Let me ask, what sort of changes do you anticipate you know, in making your current infant living annuity, you know, your, your default annuity strategy? And these are things like they're going to reduce the number of investment options. Obviously, you can't have more than, you know, you can't have 10 or 15. Um, you might review the drawdown caps. Once again, seven of the funds said they're not sure. So I do expect there's a lot of work that's still going to be done January, February next year before funds actually have their default and new strategies ready. Then just on the advice side, this is what I'm going to hand over to, to David. He actually has been involved with some default annuity options in his previous life as a valuator, and I think you can share some of these experiences. Thank you. Um, okay, hello again. Um, yeah, I, I want to start by giving an example of a fund that I worked with more than 20 years ago, which has shaped my thinking on the subject matter entirely. Um, is Professor Thompson in the audience? I don't think he is. Uh, no. Okay. But he was one of the people involved with this fund. So this is a fund, the University of the Witwatersrand Retirement Fund, and I was the consultant and for a while evaluator in the mid-90s to early 2000s. And uh, the interesting thing about, uh, let's call it default or trustee-endorsed uh, annuity strategies, these are topical at the moment because we have regulations coming from March next year, but there was nothing stopping trustees implementing such annuity strategies 20 years ago. Uh, they just didn't. Uh, but the University of the Witwatersrand Retirement Fund did, I think specifically because uh, I mentioned Professor Thompson, but probably more, even more so uh, Professor Anthony Asso was the chairman of the trustees. And basically, the way they structured this fund is that, that it's a provident fund, but they said that the benefit is a pension that you get from the fund unless you apply to the trustees to commute some or all of it. And if you, in, you have to satisfy all the conditions of the trustees. And in order to satisfy those conditions, every retiree had to fill in a four-page uh, document signed by their spouse if they were married, showing all the factors that they had considered and that they had taken advice and, uh, and giving disclaimers, etc. So what you would think with all that is there would be quite a lot of pensioners would have ended up in the default strategy. That's kind of what, what I would assume, because you made it difficult. And I, the reason I know all this and is I was the person who used to do these, uh, sorry, I'll just, I want to just carry on there. I, I, I was the person who used to write the letters to all the retirees and I had my automated program to generate the standard letter. Uh, but no, no annuitant ever chose that option over almost a decade. And for me, that's interesting. Why, why was that the case? Why did no retiree ever take the default strategy, even though it was a well-structured uh, strategy. And the most common response I get is, uh, must be commission-driven, you know, from advisors drove that uh, decision, which I think might have been a slight issue, but I'm not so sure it was uh, the predominant or the only, the only issue. Maybe I just want to say at this stage, I'm always very careful about giving away uh, client privilege information, but I regard this as 20 years later. I don't think it's particularly secret, and I think it's to the credit of that Board of Trustees anyway. Um, so that makes me think that if you want a high take-up of people who are retiring, then surely you have to make it as simple as possible for those people and as seamless as possible for those people to take it up. So in my mind, these are the factors I list as important to take into account if you want any default strategy, because I think what, what, what follows from that or, or associated to that is if you don't have a take, hard take-up, 
uh, then all you've got is you've ticked a compliance box. You've got a th theoretical solution, but no one goes in there. You haven't actually improved the outcomes of your retirees uh, one cent. And Jakob van Tonde from Investec, actually, he, he uh, referred me to some research in the United States by chap Michael Kitsis, which actually, actually backs us up with research. Basically, they say, if you, if you give a retiring person uh, a long-term financial decision that they have to make at point of retirement, then the odds are they will not make that decision. They will defer it. And that, in my mind, explains why we, to a large extent, why we have such big take-up of living annuities in general in, in South Africa. So maybe to turn it around, I mean, Dani, you said that, if I, I can't remember exactly, but maybe uh, trustees don't appreciate the downside of guaranteed annuities. Maybe I'll turn it around and say maybe actuaries or technicians don't appreciate the behavioural biases of individuals. Um, but anyway, it points to this whole issue that we've got a retail world and an institutional world. Uh, as Treasury said in my opening slides, those have been separate worlds until now, but pretty much this is forcing them to collide. So we thought interesting to get some uh, feedback. Uh, and on the one hand, this is from a financial advisor. It's voter for a very competent, very well-regarded financial advisor, but basically setting out the case why good financial advice is very important for a living annuitant, uh, uh, and I can't disagree with that at all. Uh, but on the other hand, actuaries and consultants and you know, employee benefit specialists actually see things from, from, through a different lens. So this is the feedback of an employee benefits consultant that I greatly respect. I won't uh, mention the name, although it's uh, that person's birthday today. Um, but uh, I, I agree with all this feedback. You know, you've got to make, think about this from the situation of the person who will be sitting with the retiree and giving the advice. Do not underestimate that influence. And then going on to things like, you know, bringing in John Foster and don't fleece the members and all those type of things. So I think there are just two different worlds out there. That's, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say. So going back to the, the, the survey that we asked, and yeah, I agree, Danny, with you. It's a, it's a small sample, but it's better than us just standing here and saying this is what we feel is the right answer. Um, we asked the question, do you have a panel of advisors or credit advisors to advise on this in-fund living annuities? And we've actually, okay, that's a new acronym we've introduced, you'll have gathered in this presentation. Uh, and it's about a 50-50 split between funds who put in place some sort of panel advisors and those who don't. But it's no good, in my mind, just putting in a panel and no one remunerates them because then nothing will be done by those advisors, I, I, I think, logically. So we asked the question, do you facilitate payment of advice fees? And again, it wasn't quite 50-50, but not, not far from it. So there are definitely two different schools of thoughts, I would say, among retirement fund trustees. And for those who said no, they don't even facilitate payment of the fee, we asked, we dug a bit further and said, how you know, does, does the newton get advice on these product or guidance, et cetera. And the one that Dani and I both agree is a problem is the six who said the member must just go find their own advice. Because in practice, I think that just won't happen, actually. But maybe we can put that uh, up for, for debate. Um, and one reason it won't happen, now these are, not, these are statistics that are not relevant to our uh, kind of annuity research, but I think they're interesting in the, in the sense they just illustrate the point. This is from exits from the Sunlam Umbrella Fund or retirements in 2016. What you will see is that there are only a small proportion of re retirees who are of economic interest to financial advisors, simply not viable 
uh, to advise below a certain uh, level. Now, you may counter that people below that certain threshold shouldn't be buying living annuities in the first place, but I would argue, in a sense, that's an abdication from the trustees because all that will happen is they will go into a retail living annuity anyway. So if, you, if your aim is to improve the retirement outcomes for members, you still have to consider the people, the retirees, with, with those lower amounts because the research seems to indicate they will defer taking a lot defer making any long-term binding financial commitments at point of retirement. So, we then analysed our sample of 698 in-fund living annuitants. This is the Sunlam book again. And we looked at those where an advice fee is payable versus those where no advice fee is payable. And you'll see the vast majority uh, no advice fee uh, is payable. I mean, we were trying to think of the question, are the advisors in some way adding value to justify, if you remember, there was a 44 basis points fee. And it does seem to be in a sense, you could say justified by the differential in drawdown rates, but obviously this is an insignificant sample. So I don't think we want to draw any conclusions from this. We just put it out there, something maybe to research further in the future. So to close, uh, what are our learnings and recommendations? Because as Maluzi said, that was part of the abbreviated title. Um, so we. Before we give our learnings and recommendations, we actually ask uh, the, the 22 surveyed principal officers, consultants, actuaries, uh, trustees, what do they like about infant living issues? And the way this question was phrased was different to all the previous questions that Dani showed. This was completely open-ended. It wasn't a multiple choice. You could answer any, any, question, any, any answer you want to, and then we grouped the answers, and those that got more than five positives uh, we've shown over here. And yeah, it does seem to be that what, what the clients like with the benefit of hindsight is the cost effectiveness, they like the seamlessness, and they like the flexibility of living in Newtons, to, to mention the top three. We also ask them what they dislike, and probably no surprises yeah, but it's monitoring burden, administration burden, and then the fear of the possible risks would be the, the top three as well, with some others chucked in there, we've got five as well. So, Maybe I like this quote. Uh, while I was doing the research, I, I had uh, some interactions with Ant Lester of Willis Towers Watson, and he kind of summarized it in this one uh, uh, sentence, which is probably correct, uh, uh, one could say. Uh, there is, you know, it's, it's this trade-off if you want to go in fund. There's the extra governance and monitoring, and maybe you, you know, but if you do all that, you probably will get a better retirement, retirement outcome if you do it well in any event. So, uh, to start with, the, the first presentation I talked to last year, um, and remember I was talking to financial advisors, yeah, this is where I left it last year to say, look, it does look like this is a, a viable option. Uh, it should be considered. Um, I would say if you look at that three million average, what we would say is the initial client base is what we define or call this, the savvy affluent uh, retiree, uh, not necessarily the average retiree. And you can read for yourself a few other issues I put up last year. Obviously, the one being product in infancy, we still have to see the long-term risks. If we move forward to this year, I stand by all those, but maybe add a few more that we, we, we thought in the course of our research. Firstly, what we also now seen, and it's with the default regulations coming to mind, we actually seen the emergence of out-of-fund, institutionally priced, you know, group-based um, out-of-fund living annuities. I mean, we didn't want to start analyzing cost structures there because it's just, you know, you could say at this stage maybe marketing. Uh, when there's a body of data, we can analyze that data and see how it compares. But certainly it's worth analyzing in future research. 
obviously moving towards the default regulations, I mean, it's clear a lot of the funds are still grappling. Some of the funds, quite a few, <laughs> hadn't even started considering the issues when we, when we, when we surveyed them. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what, you know, maybe in a year's time, what was the outcome, and no one at this stage knows it. I see Julia is in the audience there from the FSCA, and I know for sure they are working on what I understand will be a notice on maximum drawdown rate, sustainability, and communication. Uh, by all means, correct or don't comment uh, in, in the discussion. I, don't, I've never, I haven't seen the content. I don't know what the content is. But I would say if it's half sensible, it's probably a good thing and probably make it even easier for trustees to monitor the things because there will be a guideline to what they have to adhere. And I think what we would conclude is uh, in-fund living issues are a valid uh, proposition. Um, the main, you know, our research is borne out what kind of we knew intuitively, that, that the cost savings are the, are the main driving factor, and that's the issue. You, you, you're always balancing cost savings with extra governance uh, in deciding. I put a question, is it viable for funds of less than a billion rand to have these? Um, uh, I mean, as we would have seen, the 10 funds that we analysed all were more than a billion rand, and perhaps all the funds even in the survey that the other 15 funds that we, we surveyed. Uh, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. I think it really depends on the capability of that board of trustees. In a sense, it might even be linked more to not so much the size, but are you going to continue as a fund or are you going to go the umbrella route? That might actually uh, indicate uh, this decision. So let me close with seven recommendations that Dani and I make following our research. Now, these recommendations don't necessarily flow logically from what we've presented here today, but they are things we've discussed over the course of our research and we think would be a step in the right direction. Now, the, the one principal thing we say in the heading is it seems strange to us if you've got two similar type of products, why are there so many fundamental differences? So, so to us, a principal point is Unless there's a good reason for a difference, the, the reform direction should surely be to eliminate those differences. Um, so, we're very much in favour of strengthening uh, competition. We believe that's going to add, you know, we like an environment where people can move their money around their retirees, let the best product win. So, we're all in favour of consolidation of in-fund living annuities and out-of-fund living annuities. We're all in favour of transferability between these uh, as well. The issue of uh, 37C, we would say it's an unnecessary difference. We know there are quite advanced proposals, we understand, to only make 37C applicable while in, the, in, in service of the employer. So that actually might eliminate that difference in the not too distant future any, anyway, which probably would be a good thing. I think the CISA standard should be implemented for in-fund living units. It's, it's, it's much more important than member level disclosure, which I know our CISA are working on. And the reason it's much more important is it's a purchase decision. Uh, so I would say it should be, but a CISA can't do it. It requires legislative uh, change. I think it's clear to us that this is a new area for retirement fund trustees, and they really have to rethink the whole issue of uh, advice and support uh, to in-fund living units. And actually, I don't think it's just in-fund limitations. Preservation, in a, fact, in a sense, will be that factor as well. The issue of an annual drawdown rate, much more like when you have an annual pension increase date for pensioners, pen, guaranteed pensions paid by, from a fund, like in a defined benefit days, would certainly, in our, our mind, be an improvement and improve the governance of these structures. And finally, the phase categorizations need a rethink uh, and it shouldn't just, it's not just in-fund living it's, it's preservation as well, because with the default regulations, we're likely to have 
much many more preserved members uh, in a fund. And in a sense, you could argue that no one is going to be able to advise on those people preserved in a fund because if, if someone has got a million rand preserved in the fund and you want to speak to, an advisor wants to speak to them and say, I'm thinking of moving you from here to that retail product, I don't see how you can give comprehensive advice of, unless you can advise on both, both elements. But the licensing doesn't allow them. They've got to say, I can't tell you anything about your current fund. I can only tell you about where you're going, which is problematic. So we would say phase categorizations should be structured on skill sets rather than licensing and that they should be uh, identical for in-fund living in Newtons and out-of-fund living in Newtons. So I hope that's been of some interest. I want to thank uh, quite a few people who helped us uh, with the work along the way and hopefully we can have some good discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, David and Danny. I think this is absolutely timely. I know a lot of trustees, consultants, and organizations are grappling with uh, implementing their annuity strategies ahead of Regulation 39 coming into effect. We've got some time for questions. So if you have a question, please put up your hand, and we will take um, there's one back there. Thank you. Hi, Linda from Zimbabwe. We have one fund which on dollarization in 2009, which is 10 years ago, decided that drawdown together with converting to DC would be the answer for their annuitants. At that stage, and still, there is virtually no legislation for us to comply with. We therefore have to apply actuarial techniques and principles as set by um, professional bodies to the best of our abilities and uh, professional judgments and uh, we do quite a lot of reading and try and do the best we can to advise and help the annuitants to get the best out of what they've got. We have a lot of problems. So thank you very much. This has been amazing. and. I totally sympathize with the problems that you have with this research. So this is really another area for which you might want to develop the research. It's also something that trustees might take. It's something that's developed over the last 10 years as technology has developed. And it's something I think we can take back as our communication with our legislator has, has improved, as our communication with our trustees has improved, as our communication with our trustees, as our trustees themselves has improved. I think one of the things that we can do with employees, our employees are now incredibly savvy with no cash in the economy, there is no cash in Zimbabwe. Everything is done by electronic transfer of money, um, mostly by mobile phone. Um, very little internet banking. Most people don't have computers to do it on. It's done by mobile phone. So 
if we can get trustees to educate the 45, the 30-year-old as to what their choices will be at retirement as far as drawdown goes. Sorry to interrupt you, Linda. I'm going to ask that you uh, wrap up and get yeah. to the question. Thank but, you. But the question is, the, the com the, the, questions are, for, for the next presentation, can there be something on um, research into uh, educate, what education is done um, amongst companies in that pre-retirement sector and what trustees are doing? Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Um, I think that's something, it was more for a recommendation, so we'll certainly take it forward with the next convention. Are there any other questions? Okay, we've got a hand there at the back. Thanks. Ah, there we go. Um, I think there's one big other difference between an infant living annuity and buying one with the, do you want me to stand, David? You're stuck. <laughs> um, there's, there's one big other difference between buying one in a fund and buying one outside. The reality is um, retirement funds spend a lot of time with an investment consultant who consults on investments as his full-time job in a, in a fund. Then you go out to an advisor, and the advisor spends most of his day trying to sell a product so he can earn commission. He doesn't spend 100% of his working day understanding the investment markets. So what he ends up doing is he ends up putting all of his members into a product he's heard about or some investment default, and all the ASISA research seems to suggest everyone goes into a balanced portfolio. So. I don't think we should be underestimating the value of an investment consultant sitting with trustees deciding what an infant living annuity investment strategy should be versus a financial advisor who's trying to sell a product, earn commission, and then stops worrying about the investments. Thanks. Do you want to respond to that, David, Danny? Um, yeah, just thing I think I do agree. There is a difference between the advice you get on the institutional side and on the retail side, I, I would think. And this definitely is a valid point. Thank you. Are there any other questions? Okay, we've got a hand here in the middle. Can I ask that you please just state your name and your, uh, your company? It's Julia from the FSCA. I think David kind of forced me to say something here. <laughs> um, I just wanted to mention that the conduct standard relating to the default regulations for living annuities has actually already been drafted. It's just going through our internal review process before it gets issued. I was hoping it would already be issued so actually people could already be discussing it, but I don't think it's going to be much longer, so probably in the next two to three weeks. Maybe I'll just add on that. Is Danny and I were well aware that we might have to make a change to our slides at the last minute if something got issued, but it didn't. <laughs> okay, thanks. Any other questions? Okay, we've got a question from Michelle here in front. I suppose not so much a question than a comment. The one thing that we haven't touched on, Ryan, the challenges here, 
is the administration difference in managing retirement funds up to retirement and what you need to administer moving from retirement to decumulation stage. And I think that's a big challenge because we're just assuming that it's a decision by the trustees and you can click your fingers and it will be implemented. But that's not necessarily practically what's going to happen. And I don't think there's been a huge amount of work around how do you practically manage in-fund living annuities and administration platform for administrators that maybe haven't done it before? So I think that's also a factor that probably needs to be added to consideration. Look, that's fine. I just send the women are asking questions so they can live longer. But um, um, that's obviously 100% uh, correct. And uh, I mean, Darby, the villages, uh, comment talks to that about, you know, I mean, even for like speaking, someone who works for an administrator has done it, there's had to be significant learnings um, uh, in getting to grips with the, the issue. So it's 100%, it's 100% valid. I mean, that's definitely something trust, that's maybe a first question trustees would have to ask their, whoever is the current administrator, because probably it would be a big ask to move the administration on, on the basis of, of this decision alone. Hi, Fadi Boyson, Old Mitchell Wealth. Um, just a quick question on the caps that uh, were spoken about on advice fees that are facilitated by the in-fund living annuities. Are those fees capped at a product advice level or at a financial planning fee level? In other words, does it make provi provi provision for comprehensive financial planning as well? Um, from our understanding from interaction with the clients, it's more on just the in-fund living annuity. So there will be a cap on, on normally as a percentage of assets on that. Whether you're a financial advisor can include, you know, a list of financial advice under the cap is perhaps doubtful. So I do think if the member wants more holistic advice, they probably need to pay outside the fund for that. Yeah, maybe just to add on to that, look, I, I think that, 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 that that's correct. And this is part of where the industry is grappling with. And I think it will be the same for these institutional price out of fund living annuitants because the trustees, in a sense, have now this obligation to control all the costs. And I think it's at a stage, I think the, 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 the EB consultant I quoted you know, refers to that kind of the industry is now trying to grapple with where is that right middle ground. And no one actually knows knows the answer, we'll, what we will, you know, if, if it's set too low, then you will actually see that ultimately in your monitoring that no one's getting uh, access to appropriate advice and then, you, then boards would be forced to think about upping it and uh, I guess it's something we'll have to find the, the right middle ground over time. And, and maybe to go on further, I mean, the practices would differ from fund to fund, to fund on that. Thank you. Uh, we've got a question at the back there. Uh, it's John Anderson from Alexander Forbes. So thanks for the, all the uh, good insights. I think we've also done some analysis over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, I think looking at you know, a broader database. And I think it's not just retirement, but also looking at um, preservation. I think I'll just share some of that because I think it is uh, relevant here. Just trying to analyze what are the f key success factors to improve the outcomes for individuals, improving their pensions. I think that's ultimately what we want to do. By just having a solution, something that you put on the table in place, 
already improves, and I think there's, um, you know, that, that, that's proven. The other thing is that advice is important. So when you don't put advice in place, or at least support, so that could be member education, retirement benefits counselling, or formal advice, definitely improves the outcome. I think I've also had some experience with funds that put things in place, there was no advice, and exactly the same um, experience as the, the, the WITS um, uh, fund. So I think it is the solution, advice. Um, an interesting one is that industry is a key factor determining success. And what that really means is that you can't have a one-size-fits-all. So different industries require different approaches depending on the member uh, demographic. So structuring it around that. And the last factor is uh, experience. Now, I think, unfortunately, there is no... Uh, science behind that, but just in looking at in practice, when you make it, as you say, David, easy for members to uh, get onboarded, look at what they're doing, get the options, um, it makes it take all those things away, the compliance, the paperwork, etc. So I think, uh, and then also working with the human resources and how they promote these things in the workforce. So I guess my question, that was comment, question is, how do you see the, I see the next level is that engagement part, whether it's in or out of fund, doesn't matter. The engagement part, how do you see that evolving? Because I think that's the next uh, thing to enhance uh, outcomes. Thank you. John, I mean, I absolutely agree with everything you said there. Uh, and yeah, maybe you could, I could summarize it as one has to think about this puzzle holistically and a lot of the parts of the puzzle have been thought of in isolation in the past and it's not just the um, uh, quantitative side, we have to think about the human behavioral side, the education side, so I think it'll be a big, you know, the, the, the issue of, of a new, never mind in fund of initiatives, so the, the, the issue of how boards of trustees get involved in this post-retirement space is going to be an interesting one and I think a lot of people in the historically in the employee benefits industry and a lot of people historically more in the retail advice space are going to learn a lot and probably the, in, the, the annuity space I think will look very different in five years time but what that will actually be I'm not you know I can't say at this stage. I think just to add to that, so we're very excited about all the developments on the member counselling side so we do think it's quite important for members to start thinking about retirement you know, a couple of years before you actually hit it. Unfortunately, you know, retirement is not something you build up a lot of experience in. You only retire once. You can't redo it again in five or ten years' time if you mess it up the first time. So having perhaps the functionality to let people test drive a different annuity option or something like that before retirement will go a long way in giving a bit more comfort and assist members. Yeah, thanks for that, John. And I think you're absolutely right. So, I mean, this is a very complex issue, and there's no doubts that it's about putting all the right pieces together. Uh, John, um, David did allude to the fact that it's about creating a seamless experience from pre to post retirement. And I think that statement is quite um, innocent sounding, but there's a lot to how you actually create that seamless experience because that makes all the difference. Um, are we going to have any other questions? Okay, we've got a question right up front here. Get a mic here, please. Thanks. It's Mickey Lava. Um, following on from John's point, I've seen some interpretations that the regulation doesn't actually require a product. 
It merely requires a strategy. And that almost makes sense from what um, John has said, that it's the, the engagement is actually gets more points than, than the product. Is it, is it your understanding that one actually needs a product in the default annuity strategy? Um, um, yeah, look, I'm aware of that interpretation, and I, I'm, I'm actually not sure. I thought about it. I'm actually not sure of the answer. I think that those are the type of things that would be, we'll find out in time to come. But having said that, I actually think it, it's even better if you have a product in in any event, uh, or a solution. Uh, I, I think if this just remains a theoretical concept that trustees put up, this is theoretically what we're likely to do, uh, and we've seen lots of that even before default regulations, then very few retirees will, will go into it. So to me, a big part of the puzzle, and I tried to make that case earlier, is if, if the aim is to improve the retirement outcomes, you must have a high take-up rate. And if, the only way to have a high take-up rate is you've got to make it um, what the word uh, tangible, and you, need, you know, so I, I actually think you need a solution, or, or, or I would recommend it. Yeah. Thanks. We've got uh, time for about one or two other questions. Thank you, um, Neil Harris from PwC. I think. I'm going to keep this fairly brief because I'm, I'm aware we might be running out of time. Um, and I'm talking less as a pensions actually, but more as a trustee on our own staff retirement fund and our own experience. So one of the biggest hurdles faced by retirement funds, and especially when it comes to the in-fund strategies, is the lack of ability to consolidate all the retirement savings in one place. That's a big reason why I think many funds are going out of hand, looking at a retail uh, product. And our board, and I think there might be other board of trustees out there as well, see their role more in the sense of bringing the critical mass, that bulk buying power ability to negotiate better deals for the members than what they would be able to get in the retail market. Um, and I think it's, it, it maybe even speaks to a bigger I don't want to call it a problem, but a bigger hurdle that we're facing in the, in the industry, because even for active members, they're faced with the same thing. As a trustee, individual members have got a lot of savings outside of the funds as well. They might have with a previous fund, um, retirement annuities, preservation funds, and what the case may be, and they can't consolidate that in one place. Um, so as a trustee, we can do projection statements and all kinds of nice communication, but at the end of the day, we've got a very limited view of what that individual, what his position is. Um, so I guess the challenge would be to have a think about how we can, what we need to do in the industry to be closer aligned, what kind of framework we need to put in place to start consolidating all the information and really getting a more holistic view of the individual's position, um, and then what role pensions actuaries and trustees can play in that space. Okay. Um. Maybe I'll look at all valid comments, and actually I'm, I'm a member elected trustee of our staff fund, so I have the same uh, uh, issues. Um, I, maybe I, I guess PwC may not be the, the average profile client out there, fund, you, 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 one, one could argue. But, but I, I, I think the, the point you make about consolidation and fragmentation is very valid, and you would have seen that right at the top of our seven recommendations. So in a sense, if the regulator... What, I would argue, wants to make this optimal, 
we would, I would argue strongly that the issue of transferability and consolidation is the best way to go from a reform perspective. And you know, I believe in those free market principles. And then, uh, with full you know disclosure, transparency, good advice, all those issues, and then the best product provider will win. And that surely is a good thing. Thank you very much. I think we are out of time. Um, I just want to thank um, Danny and David um, and encourage that you please participate in social platforms using the hashtag, uh, hashtag ESSA2018. Uh, thank you very much.